in this episode, I furthered the discussion about the banking crisis, quote unquote, that we're currently enjoying in the headlines and the life insurance industry. And can a banking run, you know, bleed over, can contagion bleed over into the life insurance industry? And so we've talked quite a bit about that. Um, but since we, I think it was episode 166 we released and kind of talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Since then, you know, as well as I do, Credit Suisse in Europe, you know, Sweetheart Deal, UBS, Credit Suisse, um, and then, you know, Deutsche Bank. And so the headlines keep getting ginned up. And so I'm going to continue the discussion. And so normally we record an introduction, an intro to the video after the episode is shot. And so I'm coming in today a couple of several days after the episode was recorded. And I want you to know that I sleep like a baby at night. But I knew I was going to have to record this intro today. And last night I woke up and went to bed early. I know I'm an old guy. And I woke up in the middle of the night, the wee hours of the morning. And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh. You know, I didn't really cite a lot of sources. I talked about the leverage, the current leverage within the banking industry, which is the problem. And I threw out numbers like 80 to 1, 100 to 1. And so I'm up in the middle of the night thinking, because I never, ever want to say anything that, you know, is not correct or is not accurate, that I can't back up or substantiate. And so of all the things that keep me up, right, something that I said on a podcast because I'm like I said, I'm throwing out 80 to one leverage and 100 to one leverage when in the infinite banking footprint, we always talk about 10 to one, you know, fractional reserve lending, the leverage, put $100,000 in the bank, the bank can lend out 900,000. I'm going to talk about it and all that. I'm going through my mind in the middle of the night. It's like, where did I get those numbers? And immediately I think, well, surely it was one of Barry Doc's books, you know, um, the powers of Manhattan. Anyway, I got up this morning. Right, because I don't want to throw out unsubstantiated, you know, numbers and comments. And I wasn't really feeling good about the 80 to 1, the 100, the 100 to 1 leverage that I mentioned. So I'm on the phone on the way to work with my good friend, Barry Dyke, whom I dearly love. And uh, having, and I share with him what I'm doing. You got to shoot this intro and. And it was all keeping me up all last night because I said 80 to 1 leverage, 100 to 1 leverage. And uh, he said, oh, don't worry, James. He said, uh, it's not even fractional reserve lending anymore. The banks required zero in reserve today since 2020. There's a link in the notes below. There's zero reserve required at your bank. All right, think that through. So I'm vindicated. I'm being conservative again when I say the banks can leverage 100 to 1. No, it's infinite. There is no reserve requirement currently for your bank. Think that one through. So you have an opportunity to uh, become your own banker, and I hope you enjoy listening to this episode. Welcome to the Bank of Life podcast. I'm your host, James Nethery, and I want to continue the discussion on how important it is to become your own banker with the infinite banking concept, considering the uh, noise about the commercial banking situation that we're currently in, right? You have SVB, you know, um, the, the Silicon Valley Bank, you have Silvergate, you know, and we did a uh, an episode, I believe, 166 a couple of weeks ago that talked about the banking um, 
situation and, and infinite banking in the midst of the banking situation. And, and it was good, and you should listen to that. Since then, and I think I even said in that episode, this is a worldwide you know, uh, banking issue, and I don't think that we're going to be in a banking collapse into the Stone Age. This is not that, okay? But since then, 166, you know, Credit Suisse has uh, been into a shotgun, been forced into a shotgun re- wedding actually with, you know, UBS, okay? Um, so it continues. And then my office, I keep, I continue receiving calls with just, just wanting to know what the life insurance company does with the money. Can, can banking contagion bleed over into the life insurance world? Um, and just kind of, hey, how's my money? What's a life insurance company doing with my money? And uh, so there, so we're going to continue the conversation. I want to go back to SVB, right? They, uh, $209 billion in assets, according to the FDIC. And, you know, Ryan Griggs did a really good job the first 15 minutes of 166 explaining, you know, the long-term nature of the bond. And then you've got to liquidate early when there's a inverse relationship with bond values and interest rates. Interest rates go up, bond values go down. Well, if I have to liquidate because there's a quote-unquote run on the bank, then I'm selling these bonds at a loss. And so here we have SVB, $209 billion in assets. They had to sell $23 billion in bonds, and they lose $2 billion. And that causes contagion because all the hedge fund managers and all the venture capitalists tell their clients to take money out of SVB. There's so much there. Number one, the relationships that you have with your commercial lender is important, right? Um, did SVB do something, this little woke bank, did they do something to make the venture capitalist angry, to cause a venture capitalist to tell, instruct their clients to, to take their deposits out of the bank? You know, I'm just pointing out that relationships matter and you should have a good relationship with anybody you're working with financially. Okay. Um, and then, so I can't handle a 1% loss if I have $200 billion in assets. I have to liquidate $23 billion in bonds. And you know, these banks are required to have a certain amount, own a certain amount of treasuries. Uh, think about that. And wait, who controls the interest rate? Oh, the Fed causes the interest rates to go up. Can't I internally? I'm just asking a rhetorical question here. If I'm at the Federal Reserve and I want to quash a bank, can I do that? <laughs> you dang right I can. Okay. $209 billion in assets. I've got to sell $23 billion in bonds, and I'm going to lose $2 billion. I'm going to lose 1%, and that's going to cause me to go out of business? Well, yeah, if you're leveraged, I don't want to overlook the leverage. These banks, the fractional reserve banking system is fractional reserves, right? If you put $100,000 in the bank, we all talk about, well, the bank can turn around and lend out nine times, 900000 There's a fraction that's in reserve for the loans outstanding. That's being conservative. Depending on where you want to get your data, right? These banks are leveraged anywhere from 80 to 120 to one. So now when I've got to sell assets, right? I'm so over leveraged. I better have Uncle Guido handy to bail me out. No question, right? Because I was over leveraged. Um, so, I mean, just, I don't want to jump over that. Okay. The fractional reserve 
banking system causes boom-bust cycles. They cause bank runs because of the over-leverage. You know, and, the, and really a bank run starts, um, it can happen because of the leverage in the banking system, but it really starts when there's a lack of confidence, right? When the people have a lack of confidence. If I am not confident that I can go to the bank and withdraw my money, I'm going to go down there first before you do. I want to get my money out before all the other depositors get their money out. Right, such a Ponzi scheme. First one in, you know, makes all the money. So the first one in to withdraw, they lose less. You know, it's it's a lack of confidence, okay? And so, and I think I said it too, and I've said it several times, you know, the conservative, the fiscal, and I'm about as fiscally conservative or conservative fiscally as you could be, but it's like, oh, well, you know, Yellen, you know, she's out there saying, well, we're going to, you know, uh, support the banks that we want to support. We're not going to support. We're not going to bail out the the little banks, regional banks, community banks. You know, there's no question that they're driving deposits to the big banks. Okay, there. Yeah, is that going on? Sure is. You know, are they cleaning out their banking system? Uh, yeah, probably. You know, they eat their own. When there's no problem, there's never a problem till there's a problem, right? But when there's is a problem, there's no opportunity that's overlooked. They'll take advantage of a problem and squelch the ones that need to be squelched. And I'm not trying to be too conspiratorial. I want to encourage your thinking. Look deeper of what's really going on. Um, so the the lack of confidence, they're over leveraged, right? Um you know, and there, like I said earlier, there's been about 48 banking crisis, crises in our history. And uh, let's look at the FDIC. You know, it was created in 1933, I believe, and the limit was 2500 Look, the FDIC is broke. They have a fraction of a penny for every dollar up to the $250,000 that the uh, secondary guarantee, and that's a secondary guarantee. The primary guarantee is what the bank is doing with those deposits, Right. And when you have these games going on and over leverage and lending into cryptocurrency and startups and digital, you know, no, your local bank does not do that. Your community bank does not lend against cryptocurrency. They do not lend against tech startups. You know, they lend at local businesses and they know their local businesses. So this idea of, you know, Janet Yellen saying, well, we're not going to, you know, bail out the little banks and the community banks. In my opinion, you know, she's driving money to the big banks. Right. Um, OK. It's OK to know your bank. You know, they have they have their financials. You can go in there and ask for them. They're probably on the counter when you go in there. It's OK to look at them. It's OK to talk to them. You know, I'll I'll buy you a steak dinner if they're lending on big old cryptocurrency outfits and mining operations. Now, they might be, you know, lending on the on the hardware. So my point is they're not lending like SVB was lending and they're probably not leveraged 80 to one either. OK, um, so if we look at banking crises, you know, in our in, in the history of the United States, there's been about 11 or so, 11 or 12 um they happen all the time. They happen with regularity, and they will continue to happen. And this is the very reason that you should consider the idea of becoming your own banker and controlling your own capital. And the many of you that have, you know, God bless you, um, there's still a legitimate concern. Well, what is a life insurance company doing with my premium? What are they doing with that money? And so I want to kind of talk about that, right? Number one, when you pay a premium to the life insurance company, it is not your money. 
right? It becomes their money. It's their capital. Now, you bought a contract. A life insurance policy is a contract or an annuity is a contract. And it's full of guarantees, promises to pay, right? That's what you've bought. And you have certain rights within that contract. You have a loan provision, a surrender, you know, a, la- a withdrawal. You know, you have non-forfeiture. You've got a lot of rights within that contract. Excuse me, but it's not your money. The money belongs to the life insurance company. And let me tell you, I'm going to say it over and over because it's important. Financials matter. The philosophy of a life insurance company matters. You know, dividends matter. What they do with their portfolio and how transparent they are, their portfolio it matters because we're talking about your money that you put in and bought that guarantee. And that guarantee is made by the life insurance company that's issuing the policy. So what they do absolutely matters. I'm just saying it's not your money, it's theirs. So what do they do, James? They have to put that money to work to meet future obligations. There's a 100% chance that you're going to graduate. I'm going to graduate. We're all going to graduate. When? We don't know. All right. And then if you have cash value and you do with a dividend paying life insurance policy issued by a mutual company, um, it, it accumulates cash value. There's a guaranteed component of that cash value. It's going to rise. The cash value of that base whole life insurance policy is going to grow to the face amount at age 120. It's a guaranteed increase. Every day, the cash value goes up. Then there's a non-guaranteed component, right? If I buy a policy with a mutual company, mutuality is very important here, okay? It just means that I, the policyholder, am an owner of the company, right? And it so... It matters who owns the company, right? And that structure, mutual versus stock company. We're not going to dive into that deeply today, but we're going to talk about mutuality. Then I get to experience the financial, I get to share in the financial experience of the life insurance company. So if they were financially successful, profitable last year, then they pay a dividend or in a given year, they pay a dividend at the end of the year. The dividend is not guaranteed. But I have certain rights because I'm the contract owner to uh, tell that company what to do with the dividend. I can take the dividend in cash. I can take the dividend to reduce the uh, premium. I can take the dividend and tell them to reduce a loan. I can tell them to keep the dividend and let it earn interest. Or I can have the dividend be paid into the paid up additions rider. And I know that if you uh, practice the infinite banking concept, you know exactly what I'm talking about. That dividend paid into the PUA, paid up additions rider, it's a non-guaranteed component. But when it's paid into the PUA, that is the other component with the guaranteed increase in cash value that's growing every day to meet the future death benefit face amount at age 120, plus the non-guaranteed dividend. The combination of those create an increasing cash value. And that's how we can calculate an internal rate of return. As a side note, just because a company pays a 5% dividend doesn't mean you're earning 5% interest. There's more on that in this channel. So my point here is that the capital accumulates, you know, on a guaranteed and a non-guaranteed basis. And it is important on what the company does with the money that you paid in premium. They put that money to work to meet future obligations, the death. And I can get mad. And here's my point there. I can get mad and leave with a cash value. That's an obligation to the company. Okay. And, and this also, 
um, speaks to the uh, very importance of um, the, well, I've already said the philosophy and the financial practices and the investment, you know, portfolio of the life insurance company. But the philosophy is is very important. Um, and I'll come back to that. I wanted to look at, consider an overview. You know, if I back up and look at three timelines that we should all consider and think about, number one is the history or the timeline of banking panics, or I'm sorry, panics and depressions and recessions, right? So prior to 1929, you know, depressions were called panics, okay? So there's three kind of timelines that you should think about maybe and consider if you if you wish to. Number one is the history of economic panics, depressions, right? Um, recessions. And number two is the history of bank uh, crises, you know, so there's been about, like I said earlier, about 48 economic events, and there's been 11 to 12 uh, banking crises. And then there's the third timeline is really a, kind of a large overview, 30,000-foot overview of the historical events that the companies that exist today, the mutual life insurance companies that are alive and in business today in 2023, have endured since their existence, Okay. And I've given this before, but maybe not as complete. But, and I'm not saying that this is, excuse me, this is uh, totally complete. You know, I'm sure I've overlooked something and and left things out. Um, But let's just consider them for a minute. Because, look, most of these life insurance companies that are mutual life insurance companies that are in existence today, they've been in, in existence, you know, going as far back as 1847. All right, and then there's 1851, 1860, 1886, 1887, 1888, 1905, you know, um, these companies are very old. And these are the things that they've endured. The panic of 1890, the panic of 1803, the panic of 1902, 1907, and 1910. Then we have a, an economic depression briefly in 1913. And then we have the Federal Reserve created in 1913. Central Cartelized Banking. So the Central Bank of the United States is the Federal Reserve. It's not federal. There are no reserves. And it's more of a cartel than a system, my opinion. Okay, but that was created in 1913. Wonder why? Well, they had to create a central bank because you can't have a world war without a central bank. So then we have World War One, started within months of 1913. Right, 1914 is when it started. Right, you all, and I'm not even trying to give a history lesson. I want you to think and consider. All of these events that the companies that practice or you can practice the infinite banking concept with have endured, okay? Excuse me. Then we have the Spanish influenza, 1918. Yeah, started in Fort Riley, Kansas. Um, 1920, the crash of 1920. Oh, James, I never heard of that one. Yes, of course you haven't because there was no federal intervention, So it recovered very quickly and very robustly because the recovery of 1920 created the boom, the the uh, the uh, the roaring 20s. 
Right, and then we go into the, the crash, the depression of 1929. And then we have a banking crisis in 1930, 1931, 1933, and then a localized crisis in 1932 in Chicago. It's Panic Inside the Loop. It's a good book. Then we have uh, 1937, you know, economic uh, hiccup there. And then we have World War II. The dividend-paying life insurance company that you can engage with and practice becoming your own banker, the infinite banking concept, have endured all of these things. Brenton Woods Agreement, the Korean conflict, economic recession of 1960, 1969, Nixon closing the gold window at the Federal Reserve in 1971, completely severing all ties to the gold system. 1973, um, 1980, the the uh, savings and loans debacle. You know, savings and loans don't even exist anymore. You should look up the Keating Seven and the savings and loan, and uh, then that that uh, morphed into the Resolution Trust Corporation of 1989. It's okay to look at that. Uh, another real estate crisis caused by all the shenanigans and the savings and loan debacle. All of this real estate repriced. Sold off at great discounts to the insiders or private buyers. Um, this is nothing new. This Babylonian banking system that we have goes all the way back, actually, to the garden. Okay, just pointing out that this is nothing new. Then you have the the uh, 1990, 2001. You have the uh, Black Monday, Black Friday of the 80s and 90s. You have 2001, that recession. And you have uh, 2007. Then we have the uh, so-called pandemic of 2020. Um, and none of that, that list doesn't even include all of the unnamed wars and conflicts that the empire has engaged in. All through these events, these mutual life insurance companies have paid a dividend, the non-guaranteed dividend on the right side of the ledger. They keep paying the dividend. And I know I haven't found the documentation yet, but I'm looking, and if you can help me out, I'd greatly appreciate it. I've heard many times in my career that mutual life insurance company, at least one of them, paid their dividends in gold in 1932 or 1933. Okay, I would love to know who they are. I, I tend to believe them. They wanted to make a point. There were no runs on the bank. Right, And our ancestors put money in life insurance. They paid premiums. They watched the cash value. They used the cash value um, to retire on or do whatever they were going to do anyway. But people put money into life insurance, and they paid the dividends. Right, um, It was very normal for people to build capital in life insurance policies before the 80s. The 401k, the Keogh plan, the Keogh plan came out. So... Um, I'm just saying that there's a long, strong history of dividends. And now there's a lot of beautiful, large, historical life insurance companies that have gone out of business as well. And if you look into their histories, the reasons typically why they've gone out of business is, number one, they made mistakes with their capital, trying to be like everybody else. We want to be all things to all people. We want to be a financial services industry, you know, provider, Um they want to demutualize. So instead of enjoying six to eight percent profits on an annual basis, we can demutualize and become a stock company. That way we can run our profits up to nine, 10, 11, and 12 percent. We want to be more profitable. 
right? And I'm not saying the life insurance industry is squeaky clean, pure as a driven snow. I'm not saying that, but I am saying a well-run mutual company, understanding the structure, the mutual structure, and what they do with the money that you pay in premium, what they do with that capital is important, okay? Mutual life insurance company, this is what they've endured, the ones that currently exist today. I want to point out, that number one, they cannot leverage. This is a, this is huge. If I pay $100,000 in premium, if they have $10 million in premium, net of all their expenses to put the policies in force, they can't lend out more than what they have. They cannot go out and lend $100 million or $90 million. They cannot leverage. They can't do it, right? If they, it, and rightly so, Okay, so all of these banks that are collapsing and going to collapse, and I'm not saying that we're in a bank, you know, run and there's going to be contagion all around the world and we're going to the Stone Age. I don't believe we're there, but I do believe that you should be prudent where you put your money. There's no question about that. And I think you should be confident of where you put your money. And I think the life insurance companies that you pay premium into is very important. You should do your homework. You should look at their financials. They're all public. Right. And, And so it's okay to 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 look and learn. Okay. <clears throat> but they cannot leverage. So can there be a bank run? <clears throat> well, no, I don't really believe there can, you know, so today, and then I want to say there's something that's called, um, asset matching, right? And this is the importance and, or one of the importances, uh, or one of the important factors of underwriting, proper underwriting, right? Um, I've got to go through a medical, underwriting process to be approved for life insurance. Perfect, because I'm going to pay in pennies, and if I die, there are going to be thousands paid out. And the life insurance company don't want to pay that death benefit for a long time. So if you're not healthy, you can't have coverage. But say I am healthy. I've gone through underwriting. So in, in my point here is it might not be good that the company that you pay your premiums to table shave. It's like if your standard you get standard. If you're table four or table five, which is rated, you got to pay a higher cost per thousand of death benefit, and the company table shaves down to standard, we're going to make you standard so you pay a premium. Really, you got a higher risk of mortality. Is that the best? It is in the short run, right? Because the company gets more premium, which is income to them, they're more profitable. I'm just saying it may not be best for the long term. Proper underwriting, all right? Um, And part of that proper underwriting is um, the actuarial sciences. You know, I'm not an actuary. But to price life insurance, I need to have a reasonable expectation of how many people are going to hold their policies to maturity until I die, until I graduate. There's a death benefit being paid out. How many people are likely a reasonable expectation of how many people are going to surrender early? I'm going to get mad and quit and walk away with my cash value, right? How many people are, it's for the actuarial sciences, it's okay for the life insurance company to have a reasonable idea and a reasonable expectation of the loan activity of a life insurance policy because that's a guaranteed provision. If you have cash value, the owner has a guaranteed right to collateralize that cash value. That's a capital call on the life insurance company. You know, if you have a right, and you do with a life insurance policy, to demand a near a loan, and you shouldn't, you should be nice and ask politely and, you know, 
Where's paperwork? What do I do? Get the loan. That's a capital call. The, the life insurance company has to have that cash available. At time of death, they have to have that money available to pay. They have to have the capital available in a future time point, a period of time to for the, the cash value for the client to get mad and walk away. So underwriting is important. Actuarial sciences are important. And then they can practice something called asset matching. You know, I can buy a bunch of long-term bonds and have no fear of having to sell early, right, and potentially lose money if interest rates have gone up, if I have a reasonable idea of how many people are going to hold these policies to maturity, and I have a reasonable idea of how many people are going to get mad and quit and surrender their value, have a reasonable idea of how much I'm going to have in outstanding loans at any given time, right? So how a company is run is very important, philosophy. Um, and <clears throat> so... The company, when you pay the premium, like I said earlier, they have to put that capital to work to meet these future obligations, the death, the cash value, the loan values. Um, well, where are they going to put them? They can't go put that money in cryptocurrency that's unknown. The future value of any cryptocurrency is unknown. It's zero, in my opinion, ultimately, because the Fed's going to take that over since they created it. They're going to close the loop on the cryptocurrency, in my opinion, with their own cryptocurrency. Um, but it's still unknown the time period. Okay. Um, okay. Okay. Well, so I'm just, I'm just saying that the underwriting is important. You know, these future obligations, when you pay your premium to the company, that premium becomes their capital. They have to put that capital to work to meet the future obligations. They can't put it into cryptocurrency. They can't put it in the stock market, the rate of return. You know, you can always look back on anything and figure out a rate of return, but there are no guarantees in the stock market. There's no guarantees that those values are going to go up. There's no guarantee that that value is going to be there if somebody died and the life insurance company has to pay it, pay a death claim. Okay. Um, so, but they have to put the money to work. Where do they put it, James? They put it in government bonds of varying durations, short-term, long-term, mid-term, one-year, three-year, five-year, 10-year. High-grade corporate bonds of varying durations, one-year, five-year, 10 years, and then high-grade corporate real estate. Asset matching. Do we have enough liquidity, right, to meet these expected obligations, Death benefit, withdrawals, loans. And it's yes, they're bean counters. They manage this portfolio over a 120-year life expectancy. It's theoretical. I get it. I'm not going to live to 120. I hope you do. But this three, theoretical life expectancy, is, is that's the time period. That's the duration that the life insurance company is managing this portfolio over. Now, if you think about that, if I want a fixed position in my portfolio, whatever it is, I could own real estate, stocks, bonds, ETFs, whatever. If in a bond is a fixed position in a portfolio, right? You go buy a target date fund and you're automatically put into a target date fund if you have a 401k at work. And the side note here, the target date fund is just a blend of equities and fixed bonds, so the longer out you go, the higher portion or the higher uh, position, a greater position you have in equities. 
if you're going to retire in five or 10 years, you're going to have a lesser position in equities and a higher position in bonds. Bonds are fixed. So let's just say if I'm an investor and I am, and I'm not giving investment advice and I want a fixed position, well, cash is fixed. That's okay. But there's a devaluation of the dollar occurring daily. How much cash do I want? So if I buy life insurance, they're buying bonds. I am being buffered by this bond volatility. Interest rates go up. I couldn't control that. Neither could you. Neither could the life insurance company. Right? So if they're matching assets, you know, efficiently, then I don't, they don't have to sell the bond at a discount. And here I'm putting money into a fixed position being buffered by the volatility of a bond portfolio by the life insurance company. What's wrong with that? Oh, nothing. Okay. Now, let's talk about guarantees, right? The life insurance company has some guarantees. Your bank has guarantees up to $250,000, right? FDIC and life insurance is not FDIC insured at all. Well, let me tell you, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but the FDIC, the FDIC is broke. They have a fraction of a penny for every dollar they have on reserve. And now when Janet Yellen says, oh, we're going to insure everything above the 250, they only have a fraction of a penny up to the guarantees of 250,000, right? The credit union, same thing, different uh, association, a different governmental entity uh, guarantees the accounts up to $250,000, right? Life insurance with annuities, there's a $250,000 guarantee. It's a secondary guarantee, though. Let me be clear. The guarantees in life insurance and in annuities are backed up and made and backed up by the claims paying ability of the life insurance company, period. Secondary guarantees come through the guarantee association. That's where the $250,000 in uh, annuity guarantees is with the guarantee association, in life insurance is up to $300,000 in death benefit, $100,000 in cash value. Well, who, pray tell, are these guarantee associations? Life insurance companies are regulated by states. Every state has a guarantee association. And when you pay your life insurance premium, part of your premium is, is it's all being paid to the life insurance company, right? Every life insurance company doing business in the U.S. has to pay all of these states guarantee association fees, right? And you know, as well as I do, the consumer pays for everything. But let me back up a little bit. So all of the guarantees by the life insurance company and the policies and the life insurance policies and the annuity contracts are made by the issuing company, backed up by their claims paying ability. The secondary guarantee is through the guarantee associations who are broke. They don't have any money. Your state's broke. Your state's broke. Your state's broke. My state's broke. Oh, but they have the ability to tax. Yes, I get it. Okay, let's walk this through. Life insurance companies are regulated by the states. Now, Uncle Guido shows up as he does every opportunity and says, hey, there's minimum standards you got to meet. Okay, well, all the states meet the minimum standards of Uncle Guido, okay? And um, the guarantee associations, or let me say that, you know, life insurance is heavily regulated, right? The state insurance commissioner shows up on a regular basis to all of the life insurance companies and combs through their books. And they absolutely can say, you don't have enough capital on hand today to meet your future obligations, i.e. the death benefit and future cash values, right? So since a life insurance company cannot go bankrupt, 
the guarantee associate or the the insurance commissioner will give them a, a certain time period. All right, life insurance company, you don't have enough capital on hand today to meet obligations 25 years from now. So we're going to give you six months to raise capital. Well, a life insurance company, I mean, they can go borrow money, the mutual company or the stock company. The stock company can issue new shares, raise capital, right, through loans or new shares issued. A mutual company cannot issue shares. There's no shares to issue, right? So they have to raise capital by borrowing money. They borrow money to create the products, to sell the products. People buy the products, and then that income adds to their income and their capital base. Kind of slow and slower, okay? Uh, but either that happens, the life insurance company raises capital to meet the uh, deficiency as determined by the state regulators, or they don't. And if they don't, then the state steps in and says, okay, we're going to put you into receivership and we're going to manage you back to health. Oh, that's what I want is a government clerk to manage a life insurance company back to health. Okay. Um, but I mean, that's the way it is. I don't want to be, look, I have a lot of government employee clients and I love you all. I'm not talking about you. I'm not talking about the able, capable government employees. I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about the other ones that just check in and work on the BAM system. All right. The bare ass minimum, show up and get a check. I'm, that's what I'm talking about. Okay. I digress. So they either rehabilitate them back to health or they liquidate them. Oh my gosh. The state's broke. The Guarantee Association is broke. Who has the money? Not them. It's every other legal reserve life insurance company doing business in that state. There's going to be one that takes it all, or there's going to be several that takes blocks of business, and they step in and make sure all those guarantees are fulfilled. Think about that. What other industry in the world on the face of this earth does a competitor potentially have to stand for good for another competitor if they go out of business? I don't either. I don't. They don't exist to my knowledge and understanding. Okay, so I'm telling you that uh, it's important the philosophy, the financials of a life insurance company, how well they're capitalized. It's important their philosophy. I keep going back to that. You know, there's some of these companies that are all woke now and like they don't even like themselves. They they have forgotten the idea of mutuality of why they exist to take care of their policyholders whom are their owners okay and you know as a side note i was flying to um i was flying to cincinnati earlier this week and it was a full flight and i sit down and you know he's not ever going to listen the the flight is full this guy's in the middle seat and i mean he's massive he's three times my width and almost as tall as me i mean massive and he's, he feels bad because he's bowling over on both seats, you know, and I've got the outside seat. And uh, I'm like, geez, bro, you need some protein? Get off the protein. You know, he's a bodybuilder, huge. Anyway, we got to talking. Great young guy. He worked for a government entity that regulated. It's the FDA, you know. I'm like, hey, what are you doing? Where are you going? What's happening? You know, just having a great conversation. And um, he was a sharp guy, but. I'm not talking about him as a government entity, but, you know, as a side note, and this may have to be cut out, you know, here he is in the FDA. He's regulating these uh, vaping pens, right? So he's shutting, shutting down all these Chinese markets and, uh, you know, then they pop up and it's all unregulated and whatever. But he also shuts down Ma and Pa American operations, right, that haven't paid 
the fee or got the special stamp of approval or their license. So they're out there delivering high quality products to the consuming public, but they don't have a license. So I'm like, wow, what a conflict for the empire, you know, shutting down Mon Paul while you're not even regulating the pharmaceutical industry where all the pharmaceuticals come from China. It's like, makes no sense to me. He goes, yeah, that's not my department. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that should probably be cut out. <laughs> but a great guy. But then on the flight back, he shows up too in line. He goes, oh, I got the middle seat. And I'm like, nah, bro, you don't. No, no. Anyway. Um, okay. So... Um, what do you do? You want to practice the infinite? This is a very reason. The banking situation, the historical events. You know, Nelson used to say, every great event in history, behind it, there's an economic cause. You cannot separate these great events from economics. Can't be done. And he's, it's true. He's right. He was right. You know, so what do you do? We have to put our money somewhere. It is okay to consider this idea of becoming your own banker. Get rid of the banking function in your life. Control the bank. Get rid of the dependency upon third-party lenders you know if you could build capital strategically on purpose with with intent you know i'm not trying to get all the premium in in year one or in year two or in year three i'm going to have a need for capital my whole lifetime it may change but it's not going to go away and you may be the same way so properly built, a policy that will serve you well over your lifetime. The further you go, the better it is and the less dependent you are on the third-party lending. I don't care what interest rates are. I really don't. I can't control them anyway. I don't care what the market's going to do. Other than you know my clients that are in the market, I have empathy and sympathy for them. But I can't control the market. Right? Neither can they. And then inflation. Oh, my gosh. I can't control that. Neither can you. You know, nobody wants to talk about, you know, the Ukraine situation and wars, you know, and how what that does to cause inflation. But I don't want to be political. Um, but the uh, empire is not going to quit. They're not going to quit manipulating the money supply. They're not going to quit expanding the empire and causing inflation and causing taxation. And whenever you can practice the infinite banking concept, the systematic accumulation of capital, capital formation, consistent over time with the long-term view your whole life, your children's life. You know, is it okay to talk about a 50-year timeline? Well, not for me. I'm not going to be here in 50 years, and most of you probably won't either. But your children may be, and your grandchildren may be. And if you don't do something, who will? Are you going to let these people that run the banking system, you know, control what you do? Are you going to let Wall Street control the outcome of your retirement and your future? No, there's a better way, right? Um, and it is to practice the infinite banking concept. So becoming your own banker, Nelson Nash's first book, his second book, Building Your Warehouse of Wealth, a third book, third book, How Privatized Banking Really Works, uh, Dr. Uh, Robert Murphy and Carlos Lara. And then a six and a half hour DVD that's available at the Nelson Nash Institute, or I think it's available on our website, bankingwithlife.com. Um, at least at the Nelson Nash Institute, you have access to, uh, you have digital access, you know, to stream the six and a half hour series presentation by R. Nelson Nash himself. Okay, so I'm going to wrap this up. Guarantees by the life insurance company. 
are backed up by their claims paying ability. The secondary guarantee is a guarantee association. They don't have any money. They have the ability to tax, but they force the other legal reserve life insurance companies. If a company became liquidated, if a life insurance company became liquidated through the receivership process of the state, that liquidation is, um, I mean, the way that occurs is other legal reserve life insurance companies doing business in that state have to step in and take over those guarantees. It doesn't exist anywhere else. So there's primary guarantees by the issuing company, secondary guarantees by the state association. Uh, and I don't know what's you know safer or stronger comparatively in the big wide world. I do want to say that um, Executive Life out of California collapsed in A-rated company, collapsed in, I believe, 1980. And last year, and I've said it before, I was at a life insurance event, a big fortune, I mean, just a huge life insurance company. And one of the officers was explaining how they had just made their last payment to make executive life policyholders whole. This was 2022, 42 years later. Okay. Um, And then personally, I, I was not. You know, I was not a part of that. You know, I was not even, you know, I was licensed permanently in 1991. That happened in 1980. I did experience a uh, mid-continent life out of Oklahoma City, a plus rated company. They they really wanted to be a buy-term and invest-a-difference company, right? So they had some blending-type products, beautiful products, um, undercapitalized, owned by Florida Progress, A-plus rated company. State shows up and says, hey, you have uh, six months to recapitalize. And so they go to their parent company, Midcontinent Life, goes to Florida Progress, right? And says, hey, we got to raise capital. Well, Florida Progress never wanted to be in the life insurance business anyway. So they said no. And then they were liquidated. Midcontinent Life was liquidated by other legal reserve life insurance companies. So there's an element of safety that I wanted to bring forward, and, um, and I hope that helps. Okay. Thanks for listening. I had fun. Thank you for joining us on the Banking with Life podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, make sure to like and subscribe and click on that little notification bell. Otherwise, join us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher for weekly content. 